Amen. You can have a seat. So if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. Um, and Matthew announced this at the beginning, but just in case you walked in after that. So leading up to our missions conference, which starts a week from today, we're hearing from a different missionary each week. And so just to, to let you know, a little bit different today. Once we end, we'll end with the closing song, and then we're going to be hearing from Carmen and Rode to close out our service. So that'll be coming here a little bit later. Um, but if you've been with us, you know, uh, we have been, so far, we've been through 19 weeks of the Sermon on the Mount, which, I mean, I think it's pretty impressive because it takes about 19 minutes to read the whole thing, and we've stretched it out to 19 weeks. And today, we, in our 20th sermon, we're finishing the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, I want to close the series by answering just a really essential, foundational question. But I'm going to set that question up with a story. And this is actually a story that I told way back in September uh, when we started the series. But I think it really sets up our question for the day. So I told this, this story about J.K. Rowling that I learned on a, on a podcast I was listening to, which is typical for me. I always have stuff from podcasts. But J.K. Rowling, you know, author of Harry Potter, uh, I heard her tell this story that I thought was pretty interesting. So she was um, releasing these Harry Potter books they were starting to get really popular. They were spreading like crazy. And this was all happening in the late 90s when the internet was also getting readily accessible and everyone was getting onto the internet. It's still kind of this new thing, but those two things, Harry Potter and the internet, kind of grew together. And J.K. Rowling tells a story where she, she realized that as she was exploring the internet, that there were these fan sites that were popping up for Harry Potter. So all these fans from all over the world were finding each other. They were getting onto these sites, and they were using it to discuss their theories about the book. So they would get on there, and they would talk about the characters. And they would talk about, I mean, at this point, all the books were announced. They were talking about where they thought the story was going. And they were, they were just going back and forth, back and forth, all these, uh, you know, these theories and things from their reading of these books. Well, J.K. Rowling was like, it could be interesting to engage with these people. Right? I mean, like, I'm the author. Like, I created it. Like, this would be a great thing for me to get on and, and, and talk with these people. So she creates an account. She gets onto this site. Um, there's no way to verify that it's actually her, so they don't know that they're talking to J.K. Rowling. But she gets on there, and she starts talking about the books. And she gives her own theories, which, you know, she's about to write them. She gives her own theories about where the books are going. And she gives her own theories about the characters and the plot lines and things like this. And the people on this site read what she was offering, they read what she was saying, and they told her that they thought she was stupid. <laughs> okay? and she, she wrote in and they told her that this is what she was accused of. They said that she was a troll who had never even read the books. And that was clear because she did not know what she was talking about. They told her that she was completely wrong and they kicked her off the site and did not allow her to post anymore because she was so ignorant on the topic of Harry Potter, okay? which is just hilarious, right? They're, they're talking to the author. They're talking to the one who created this entire world, and they're saying that she doesn't know what she's talking about. You see where this is going? As we close up the Sermon on the Mount, that takes us to a really important question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because that is, I mean, everything that you've heard over the past 19 weeks, how you receive that and how you respond to that all depends on how you answer that question, who is Jesus? Are you talking to the author? 
of everything, right? When Jesus, when you're, when you're praying to Jesus, when you're, when you're listening to Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount, who are you listening to? Is he the one who created everything? Is he the one who is the author of life? Is he the one who knows what true human flourishing looks like? Is he the one who knows what it actually looks like to live the good life? Or is he something else? Does he actually have authority? Or is he ignorant? So you really have to make that question. Or you, have to, you have to ask that same question they asked of J.K. Rowling. You either have to kick him off the site and say you don't want to listen to him, or you got to say that he's the king of the universe, the author of everything, and he has something to say. Right? So before we move on, we, we have to answer that question. Because, this, again, just because we're through on the sermon, with the Sermon on the Mount doesn't mean we're through living the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Like, like now we actually have to go out and live the things that we've learned. And so I just want to ask this question. Who is Jesus? Let's not move on before we, before we answer that. And I'm going to answer that broad question in three sub-questions. So who is Jesus? Here's how we're going to answer that. Number one, with this question, who do the crowds say that Jesus is? Who do the people around him say that he is? Number two, who do his disciples say that he is? The ones closest to him. Who do they say that Jesus is? And then number three, who does Jesus say that he is? And we'll go into a little bit of whether we, whether we have evidence that he's actually telling the truth. Okay. Who does Jesus say that he is? So let's start with number one, the crowds. And that's actually our passage this morning, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Who do the crowds say that Jesus is? Well, notice... This is how the Sermon on the Mount ends. And it's interesting. So Matthew, you know, the, the author of, of the gospel here, he doesn't want us to move on without asking this question, who is Jesus? And so he gives us a little insight into how the crowds perceive him. Here's what it says, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, so he's finished everything that we've talked about to this point. When he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Okay. So what do they perceive about him? They're, they're astonished. They, they hear Jesus' teaching and they're, they're just flabbergasted, to use a different word. They're, they're astonished. They're saying there's something different about this guy. They hear the teachings that we've been studying and they say this guy's different. And do you notice, what's the thing that they point out that's really different about him? His authority. His authority. He, he teaches in a way that no one else teaches. When, you, when they listen to their scribes, their scribes are getting authority from other places. They would, they would cite other religious leaders and say, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this about this passage. Rabbi so-and-so says that about this passage. They're getting their authorities for others. And that's typical, okay? For any religious teacher, that's typical. Think about this. Um, the only, so when I come up here and I teach about the things of God, where does my authority come from? Scripture. I have, I have no authority to teach on the things of God if I'm not tethered to Scripture, right? Because I only have authority because he has authority, right? It's only through Jesus' authority. So you see, they're, they're, they're coming, they're taking other people's authority and they're basing their words off that. But Jesus does things differently. Jesus, when he speaks, speaks as one who himself has authority. He speaks as one who is speaking for God, right? And they, they sense this, that this, is, this guy's speaking like no one else speaks, and they're astonished by it. And so here's what we can say. If we ask, who do the crowds think that Jesus is? Here's what we can say. They know he's different. 
But, but that's really all they know. They, they know he's different. They know he teaches differently. There's something special about him. But if you, if you tried to get more than that out of him, I don't think you would get very much. You know, even there's that, that, that scene where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And you remember, they give, all, they give all these different answers. Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. No one really knows. They just know that he's different. And here's the other thing that we know. I don't know how many people were on that mountain listening to Jesus, but you know what we know? Most of them don't make it till the end. After Jesus' death and resurrection, do you remember how many followers he has gathered in the upper room? 120. So most of these people who are listening to this sermon, they know there's something different about him, but they're eventually going to fall off. They don't have the full story. Okay? So that's the crowds. They, see, they sense something different when Jesus teaches. But if we really want to know who he is, I think we need to go to the people closest to him. That makes sense. Right? The people closest to him are the ones who are going to know the most about him. Here's, here's, here's something I've noticed. So a um, little, little bit about me. Uh, for some reason, I am really fascinated by cults. I don't know. Like, anyone else agree with that? Anyone? Okay, there are a couple, couple hands. Cults fascinate me. Don't, like, if, if Netflix comes out with a new cult documentary, like, I'm, I'm there. Right? Love it. Um, and I'm not an expert by any means. But just based off watching documentaries, here's what I've realized. Um, Basically, there's this pattern that happens with cults over and over again. Uh, someone rises up as a cult leader, typically a guy, okay? He rises up as a cult leader. He gathers this following, and it goes pretty well for a while, at least as well as running a cult can go, right? Like, they, I mean, they're, they're having some kind of success enough to get a Netflix documentary, enough for people to get to know them. It always goes off the rails, it seems like, at one key moment, because for some reason, they always get a compound. Have you noticed this? Right? Like, it always leads to getting a compound. It always leads to moving out in the middle of nowhere together in Waco, Texas, or uh, you know, some foreign country, or Oregon, or wherever it is. And they all move out together in, the, in this compound. And that is when it always goes horribly wrong. Why? Because all of a sudden, people are in close proximity with the cult leader. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they're always interviewing the people now, and they're like, that's when I realized. Because they actually get close to him, and they're able to see his life, and they're able to see who he is. So Jesus is with the, you know, Jesus didn't live life alone. <laughs> Jesus lived life surrounded by community. So if we want to ask, who is Jesus, let's ask his closest friends. Let's ask the people who live, who, let's ask the people who are on a three-year camping trip with him basically, right? Like they did everything together. Let's ask the disciples. That's question two. Who do Jesus's disciples say that he is? And, I, and again, I could, we, could, we could do a long survey here, but let me just point out two things because, because this is really fascinating. So Luke, in the gospel of Luke, he ends his gospel in a really fascinating way. So remember Luke, Luke says from the very beginning that the way he got his information is he went out and interviewed eyewitnesses. He went to the people who were with Jesus. He, he did exactly what I'm saying. Luke said, I went to the people who were closest to him. I went to the people who saw him live his day-to-day -day life, and I just asked them, tell me what you saw in Jesus. Tell me about him. Tell me about the things he did. Tell me about the things that he said. And here's what's fascinating. Here's how Luke ends his gospel. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He spends 40 days with his disciples. We'll talk more about that here in a bit. And then here's how the gospel of Luke ends. Luke 24, 50 through 53. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, 
and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. You see this? So Jesus, at the very end, he ascends into heaven, and how do his disciples respond? They worship him. And we may say, well, yeah, of course, that's his disciples. Of course they're going to do that. But here's what we need to notice. Remember, we're talking about a group of Jewish guys, okay? These guys have grown up, and what have they heard their entire lives? Just think about the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship no one else, nothing else, only Yahweh. They've been told their entire lives the story from out in the wilderness where their ancestors worshipped a golden calf and things went horribly wrong. These guys have had it drilled into their brains and their hearts and their souls their entire life. You only worship Yahweh. No one else. And after three years with Jesus, how do they respond to him? By worshipping him. That, I mean, that's, that's the summary right there. Luke is going, he's asking the eyewitnesses who have been near Jesus, who is he? And they're like, oh, <laughs> he's God. <laughs> like, he, he's Yahweh. We know that so much that we worshiped him. And, and then let me say this also, okay? I mean, if you saw someone ascend into heaven, worship seems like a pretty good response, right? Like, so maybe we can say, like, oh, they got caught up in the moment. Of course they worshiped in that moment. But think about what they did after that. All of them were willing to give their life for Jesus. Something happened. Look, I mean, because we know Acts tells us that many of them were killed. History tells us that all but one, John was the only one, he was sent to exile. All the rest of them were martyred because of their faith in Jesus. So they have three years seeing Jesus every single day. And what do they do? They worship him as God and they give their life for him. They never come to their senses. They, they believe full, wholeheartedly that he is the God-man. It's really, I mean, go do some of this research. It's fascinating. You can look at the most secular scholars, and they will admit, this secular scholar may not admit that Jesus is God, but they will admit that his disciples thought he was God. <laughs> they, they, they believed what they were saying. They believed the gospel that they were preaching. Blaise Pascal put it this way, really succinctly. He said, I believe witnesses who have their throats cut. I believe people who are willing to die for the truth that they're talking about. And the disciples prove that. They're willing to go die for Jesus. That's number two. Okay, so we have the crowd. We have his disciples. Let's talk about Jesus. What did he claim about himself? Because, you know, actually a lot of people will say that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. That's actually something that a lot of people will say. What did Jesus say? Well, first of all, in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John, he gives seven very clear statements affirming that he is God. We call these the, the I am statements. And that just affirms John's opening statement in the Gospel when he says this, talking about Jesus, the Word being Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. John's very explicit, right? You read through the Gospel of John, and it's like, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He wants you to know that. Here's what's interesting. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels, they take it a different way. They don't include these explicit statements about Jesus' divinity. They don't include Jesus saying that he is God. They do it a different way. What they do is 
they assume that you know the God of the Old Testament. They assume that you've studied the Old Testament, and what they do is they show Jesus just doing Yahweh stuff. Okay? They just show Jesus doing things that only God would do. That's how they do it. Jesus is, is doing these things and saying these things, and you're supposed to read it and say, that guy's different. Okay? That guy is doing what Yahweh does. And really, it comes down to that big, this is our big word for today. It's going to keep coming up. Authority. What it comes down to is Jesus is doing things with authority that no mere man can ever have. Here's one example. Okay? It's one of my favorites. Um, Y'all know the story where Jesus is teaching in this house and the people lower down a paralytic, right? Like that's a famous kid story. You probably had it on a flannel board when you were a kid, right? And, and kids ministry. So picture this, picture this, okay? Jesus is in this house in Capernaum. Uh, we think that it was probably Peter's house, which is interesting. We're not told that, but like it would make sense that this would be Peter's house. So they're all in this house Jesus is teaching. There's this big crowd gathered in, and these people want to get their friend who's a paralytic to Jesus. And so what do they do? They, they, they have this amazing faith, and they climb up on the roof, and the way that the, the houses were made was that you could actually tear open the roof and, and build a hole in the roof, which is hilarious to think about Peter standing inside the house realizing that his roof is getting destroyed, right, as he's hearing Jesus teach. But Jesus is, is teaching, and all of a sudden, picture it, okay? Just picture that we're all here, okay? And there's this hole that forms in the roof. And then this man gets lowered down right in front of Jesus as he's teaching. Right down in front of him. And everything stops. And everyone gets really quiet because what in the world is happening, right? Like, what, what is happening? What's Jesus going to do? And what do they want Jesus to do? They want him, him to heal their friend. But do you remember what he does first? He comes to this guy, and, and he, he's standing over this, this paralytic. And before he heals him, which he eventually does, do you remember what he says? Son, your sins are forgiven. That's what he said. Son, your sins are forgiven. And again, we've heard that so much, it's easy just to move on past it and not think about much about it. Jesus is making a really big claim when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You know that? Why is he making such a big claim? Because who has the authority to forgive sin? The one that the sin is against. The only person who can forgive a sin is the one the sin is against. Okay, let me, let me give you an example. And, and look, I've used this for 11 years since I started student ministry. So it's a little bit of like a student ministry analogy, but I think it still works, okay? So let's picture this, that um, after this service, me and Dan get into an argument, okay? And you all get to see Dan up here on Sunday mornings. You know, um, big emotional guy, right? Like a lot of emotion, lot, like kind of a hothead, right? Like he's, he's kind of like, you never know what you're going to get with Dan because he's just, you know, loud, right? And so let's just say that, that me and Dan are, are in this, this argument, this heated discussion, and Dan gets so fed up with me that he just rears back and punches me as hard as he possibly can. And so I'm standing right here, or I'm, I'm standing right here, all of a sudden he hits me, I've dropped to the floor, and I don't know what's going on. And I'm just looking up at Dan, like, just blurry, and there's a little blood dripping out of my nose. I'm like, what just happened? And then all of a sudden, Dan is, is, is standing over me, still kind of just a lot of adrenaline from what he just did. And let's say 
Greg knows us both. So Greg Pitts um, decides that he's going to come smooth things over. So he comes up to Dan and in his, you know, calm demeanor comes over and he puts his hand on Dan's shoulder. And he says, Dan, what you just did to Jake, I forgive you for that. And then he walks away. How would I respond? <laughs> How would I, I would freak out. Why would I freak out? Is it his right to forgive Dan? No. He doesn't have the authority to forgive Dan. Only I have the authority to forgive Dan because the sin was against me. You see where I'm going with this, right? Jesus, okay, here, here's okay. Why can Jesus forgive sin, okay? Well, what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that all sin, because God is the creator and sustainer of life, all sin is ultimately against him. Every sin, even if it's against another person, every sin is ultimately against the God of the universe. So why does Jesus have the authority to forgive this man's sin? Because he's God. Okay? Like, that's, I mean, you can't say Jesus isn't claiming to be God. That's what he's saying in that moment. I am God. I can, I can, I can forgive you of your sins. And if you don't believe me, the religious leaders know it. And it's recorded. Here's, what they, here's their response to Jesus doing this. It says, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? They get it, right? They know exactly what Jesus is doing. So who does Jesus claim to be? God, Yahweh, the God of the universe. And if that doesn't convince you, just think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the things that Jesus has said that no mere man can say. No, more, no wonder they identify his authority. Let me just give you a few. First of all, back in chapter 5, he says over and over again, he gives his, his, his critique of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You remember this? He says over and over again, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He is an uneducated carpenter critiquing a bunch of guys who went to seminary, right? He's saying they don't know what they're talking about. Here's what I say to you, and I'm right. That's a bold claim. Think about two weeks ago. Remember that really hard passage where Jesus says, some people will stand before me and I will say, I never knew you? Think about what's inherent in that. Jesus is saying that I am the authority. One day, everyone will stand before me and I will tell them whether they're in the kingdom or not. That's a bold claim. <laughs> a, a, a normal guy can't make that claim. Even last week, Jesus tells that story of the two houses, one on the firm foundation, one on the sand. And what is, who, what's the firm foundation? It's his teaching. That's a bold claim. Okay? Jesus, over and over again, makes these bold claims. Jesus had a very high view of himself, didn't he? Jesus thought very highly of himself, to say the least. But here, okay, I can, we, great. You know, I'll get, you say, I'll give you that, Okay. But a lot of cult leaders have a very high view of themselves. Right? A lot of cult leaders have claimed great things. They've said all this crazy stuff. What evidence do we have that Jesus is actually telling the truth? Here's where we're going to get just a little bit of apologetics here. Okay? Just, a, just, a, just a second. What evidence do we have that Jesus is actually legit? Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to narrow it down to one aspect of Jesus. Okay? One aspect, and it's a key aspect because it really is the foundation, which everything crumbles if we don't have this. This is the most foundational thing about him. Here's the question. 
Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Right? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Because if, if, here's the thing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Like, like, we have wasted our time going through the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're wasting our life. You should pity us. Okay? If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, why do we come here every Sunday at 1030? We can be at brunch, you know? Right? Like, I mean, by the way, pro tip, Corner 16 has an amazing brunch on Saturday and Sundays. Okay? Chicken and waffles, super good. I would rather be there if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, right? I mean, the only reason, I mean, it, it all, it all falls, okay? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything crumbles. So what evidence do we have that he rose from the dead? Here's what I'll say, okay? Um, I can't give all the evidence. I actually have an 800-page book that has evidence. If you need that, come talk to me. I'll suggest it's, it's great. It's worth, worth, worth working your way through. But, but here's the evidence that, that I'll give you, okay? Just kind of a summary, summary of the evidence, very short, okay? Um, here's some key things we need to remember. First of all, we need to remember that the resurrection happened in public. That's so key. <laughs> the resurrection happened in public. Actually, Jesus' whole ministry happened in public. But remember, the resurrection happened in public. In Acts 26, there's this awesome scene where Paul is speaking to these two very powerful men. He's speaking to King Agrippa and Festus, the Roman governor. Super powerful guys, and he's, he's talking with them. And he's sharing the gospel. Paul is talking about Jesus' life, talking about his death, talking about his resurrection, talking about his own um, testimony of how he became a follower of Jesus. And as he's going through this stuff, Festus gets so frustrated with him that he interrupts him. And here's what he yells out. He says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Okay? Paul is just going on and on and on, and Festus can't help it. He says, Paul, you're out of your mind. And here's Paul's response. This is so great. I love this. Starting in verse 25, here's what he says. He says, I am not out of my mind, most ex excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. You see what he's saying here? You say that I'm out of my mind, but what I'm speaking to you is both true and rational. And you know why it's rational? Because there's evidence for it, and it wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done in secret. It wasn't done in private. No one went off into the woods and came back, or, you know, away from everyone else and came back and said, I got a vision from God. No. Paul's saying it all happened in public. Jesus' resurrection had witnesses. And that's actually the exact claim that he makes in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's, here's verses 3 through 8. This, is, this to me, you know, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest. There have been times in my life um, where I've had seasons of, of not, not doubt where I would ever walk away from Jesus. It was a little bit, I guess it was the situation of Peter, like where else would I go, right? Like, like he, he has the words of life. But just times where I was exploring whether the claims of Jesus are actually true, looking at the evidence, just asking, you know, is this, is this my parents' faith or this is my faith, right? Asking those questions. This was so helpful to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians. He's writing about 20 years after Jesus has resurrected here. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, being Peter, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He also appeared to me. Do you, you see his claim here? Okay, can, can, you, can you track what he's saying here? Okay, he's saying Jesus was buried. He died. He was buried. And then the tomb was empty. And not only that, Jesus then appeared to a lot of people. Okay? A lot of people, including 500 brothers at one time. And most of them are still alive. And you can go talk to them. I mean, he, he's that bold, right? If I tell you anything and say there are hundreds of people who saw it and you can go talk to them, you should at least consider what I'm saying, right? To be able to say that 500 people saw something. That's the kind of evidence we have for the resurrection. And then, look at this. He mentions James, which we're going to actually spend an entire summer looking at a letter James wrote, okay? James, you know who James was? The brother of Jesus, and here's what we, we, we know about James from the Gospels. James was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus was alive. And then James becomes a leader in the church and writes the letter that we know of James that we're going to read. What happened? The resurrected Jesus appeared to him. And look, that's almost more impressive than the 500 because if you can convince your brother that you are God, like, I mean, that's yeah, like, right? Like, if you can convince your own brother that you are God of the universe, and he literally starts out the letter of James, he says, I am a slave to Jesus Christ, okay? My brother is never going to say, I am a slave to Jake Bishop, okay? He doesn't like, even if I rise from the dead. Something happened, okay? Something happened that caused, all the, that, that caused James to turn to Jesus, Paul to turn to Jesus, these 500 to stand up and say, we saw this. Peter is saying, there's evidence the tomb was empty. Jesus was buried. Then he wasn't there. He was alive, and he appeared to others. It didn't happen in the corner. Here's a couple other things. I'll, do, I'll say these really quickly. Just another point. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we would not be here right now. I mean, that, that sounds super simple, but think about it. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we would not be here. Fleming Rutledge summarized it really well. She said, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we never would have heard of him. A lot of people made the claims that Jesus made, but there was something different. Something happened. He rose from the dead, and people saw it, and it galvanized this group of believers to take this out into the Roman world, even though it cost them their life. The gospel spread because something powerful happened. Jesus rose from the dead. And then let me, really quick before I move on, let me just say this too, okay? You don't need apologetics to know that Jesus rose from the dead. You can also, and again, this doesn't hold up in court or anything like that. It's probably not good in an apologetic argument. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that he rose from the dead because you know him. <laughs> and he's alive, right? Because you, you, you talk with him. Okay, I mean, look, I, my mind always goes to this hymn that we used to sing at my grandparents' church, little church, when we go visit there when I was a kid. Maybe you know it. It just says this. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? 
He lives within my heart. Right? I mean, like, I I mean, that's simple, okay? If you say that to a doubter, they're going to be like, that doesn't even make any sense, okay? But as followers of Jesus, I think we hear that and we say, yeah, right? How do I know that Jesus is alive? I talked to him this morning. (laughs) How do I know that Jesus is alive? I I know him. We have a relationship. Of course he's alive. There's, uh, yeah, okay? He rose from the dead because I know him. So you with me so far, okay? What do we, what do we see here, okay? The, the, the crowd sees something different in him. The disciples say that he's God. Jesus says that he's God. I think there's evidence in the resurrection to say that, that hey, we're not uh, to be pitied. We're making the right decision here to follow Jesus. He is who he says he is. Let me close. Here, secret fourth question that I didn't tell you about, okay? Big, big fourth question here. This, this is really important. We've got to ask this. Who do you say Jesus is? Okay. You've had, if you've been here, you've had 20 weeks of the Sermon on the Mount. Who do you say that Jesus is? And I want to show you as we close, take about the last 10 minutes here, that there aren't many options left for us. After everything we've talked about, there aren't many options. And, and I'm going to, if you've read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, I'm going to go into what we call his trilemma here. Okay. It's really, really really important for me, again, as I was kind of um, asking some of these questions. But let me say this. So, so who do you say Jesus is? Let me walk through the evidence with you. First of all, let me tell you what we can't say. What we can't, based on everything we've seen so far, here's what we can't say. We can't say that Jesus is a good man, but not God. A good man, but not God. There are a lot of people who read the Sermon on the Mount, and they say, I really like this. It's a good teaching. Jesus is a good man and a great teacher. The problem is you're not really reading what he's saying, if you say that. Okay? You're not reading the claims that he's making. You're not reading the other Gospels. You don't, you don't know who Jesus claims to be. Because Jesus can't just be a good man. He didn't leave that option open to us. Why? Because he claimed to be God. Okay? You can't claim to be God and not be God and just be a normal good man, right? You, you understand, okay? So we can't say he's just a good man and a good teacher because of his claims. Because he claimed to be God, he's either crazy or he's a liar, okay? Right? Like, he's crazy or he is a liar. So let's go on to the next option. Maybe he's crazy. Jesus is crazy. Um, and I had to, originally I just had that say Jesus is a lunatic, but I was afraid someone would take a picture of me up here by that and say I was teaching that. So we could say Jesus is a lunatic. I'm not saying that, but some people could say that Jesus is a lunatic. Maybe, you know, Jesus isn't a bad guy. He claimed to be God because he actually thought he was God, but he was wrong. He made all these claims about forgiving sin. He just wasn't right in the, in the head. Okay? Maybe that's it. But here, and here's, here's the answer I'll give this. Again, this is a little bit of a long quote, but it's just so good. So I got to read it, okay? G.K. Chesterton, writing back in the early 1900s, he says this. I'm going to read it slowly, try to, try to follow along with what he's saying here. He says, if I found a key on the road and discovered it fit and opened a particular lock at my house, I would assume most likely that the key was made by the lock maker. And if I find a set of teachings set out in pre-modern oriental society that has proven itself of such universal validity that it has fascinated and satisfied millions of people in every century, including the best minds in history and the simplest hearts, 
that it has made itself at home in virtually every culture, inspired masterpieces of beauty in every field of art, continues to grow rapidly and spread and assert itself in lands where a century ago the name of Jesus Christ was not even heard. If such teaching so obviously fits the locks of so many human souls in so many times and so many places, are they likely to be the work of a deceiver or a fool? In fact, it is more likely that they were designed by the heart maker. You see his point, right? There's something, I mean, just think about this. The fact that we have spent 20 weeks studying the Sermon on the Mount that was preached 2,000 years ago, and there was not one week where we were like, well, this doesn't really apply to us today. No, (laughs) it all applies to us. How could that be? Because Jesus, as the God of the universe, knows the human condition more than anyone. He knows us. He knows our hearts because he made us, and he knows how to speak to us. So assuming you're with me at this point, Jesus can't just be a good guy. He's not crazy. You're left with two options. Is he a liar or is he Lord? Okay. A liar or Lord. Here's your two options. Let me say it this way. Crown him or kill him. That's all you got. Okay. You can't be lukewarm. Jesus doesn't leave that option open to you. Crown him or kill him. That's what you got to do. One of the two. And if you're sitting there and you're like, crown him, okay, make him king, let me warn you. Are, are you sure? Are you, are you sure? And here's why I say that. Because if you crown him, what do you have to do? You have to take your own crown off. Okay? For his kingdom to reign, your kingdom has to fall. So to crown him, you've got to take the crown off. You've got to bend the knee to him and submit to him. And You've seen the Sermon on the Mount. He makes some demands on our life, doesn't he? He, I mean, he, he, look, I'm just, let me, can I be real with you? Can I be real with you? If you don't want to change, if you don't want to fight your sin, if you don't want to look more like Jesus, it is in your best interest to write him off as a fraud. If, if you don't want to make, okay, Jesus, Jesus has something to say about our sex life. Jesus has something to say about our anger. Jesus has something to say about how we deal with other people and love them. I mean, go through the Sermon on the Mount, all the things that Jesus says. If you don't want to do things his way, it is in your best interest to write him off as a fraud. Okay? It is. Because if you crown him, he makes great demands on our life, doesn't he? He calls us. I mean, it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the cost of discipleship. What does he tell us? Pick up your cross and follow me. (laughs) That's a hard saying. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's what Jesus is claiming. But here's here's how I'll really close this time, because this is what is so beautiful about him. Jesus makes great demands on your life. But you know what he also says? Morality is not the way to eternal life. Okay? He expects, right? I mean, we're going to talk about James. Faith without works is dead. He expects us to follow him. But he also says morality is not the way to eternal life. And that is what separates him from all the other religious teachers. Okay? Think about this. Buddha, great teacher. Okay? Buddha came with great teachings. But what did Buddha say? I am not God. I'll teach you how to get to God. Work hard, do what I tell you, you'll get to God. Muhammad, 
founder of Islam, teacher, what does he say? I am not God, but I can teach you how to get to God. Do what I say, and you'll get to God. What does Jesus say? I am God. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> you can't. Like, you can't. You can't. You can't do it. Even if I gave you the instruction, you can never do it perfectly. You will always fall short. But here's what I'm willing to do. I am God, and I will come from heaven to earth to live the perfect life you could not live. I will live the Sermon on the Mount perfectly. And then we sang about it earlier. I will go to that cross that you deserve, and I will have my hands nailed to it and my feet nailed to it, and I will, I will take the wrath of God for you. And then I will defeat death. And here's the offer I give to you. I've done it for you. Will you follow me? You see this? That's what makes Jesus so beautiful. Follow me. Do things that I do, but not to earn eternal life. Do it because I've earned eternal life for you. You see this? You see how amazing this is? All the other religious teachers says, say, here is the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I've won the victory for you. Now follow me. So that's my final question. Okay, that, that, That's the question. We spent 20 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the, here's the question. Will you kill him or crown him? Crown him or kill him? Submit to him as king? Or wave him off as a fraud? That's your options. That's your options. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for what you've done, and, I, and that there's evidence for what you've done, that you came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, that you died the death we deserve, and that you rose again and defeated death, and that if we trust in you, the victory is also ours that you earned. I pray that for those of us who believe this, that will lead us to follow you with everything we have, to submit to you as king. And acknowledge who you are. Acknowledge that you know what the good life actually is. That the good life is not what the world tells us. It's not what our sinful flesh tells us. It's not what Satan tells us. It's what you tell us. It's the Beatitudes. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Let us be a church that just lives that out in your power, not our own. Because it's all your power. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you will stand.